I wonder if any of you um, heard the story of the tourists uh, who didn't recognise the Queen. True story, happened last year, absolutely hilarious. Um, last year, Queen went for a walk around Balmoral, one of her palace's houses. Um, she was dressed in relatively normal get-up, corgi dog beside her, um, tweed and sort of a headscarf. Bumped into these tourists. I'm not going to give you a nationality. You might be able to guess. I'm not going to give it to you. Um, they asked her, do you live round here? Relatively common question for an old lady. That's fine. Um, she was keen not to give herself away. So she said, um, yes, I have a house nearby um, in the shadow of Balmoral behind her. Um, but it gets better. True tourist style. These tourists ask her, and it, it's absolutely brilliant. They just say to this, this woman in England, one of 60 million, have you ever met the Queen? And this is where I love the Queen, she's great. She just completely deadpans and goes, oh, no, no, I've not, but this man has, and points to our bodyguard <laughs> right there. It's, it's brilliant, and my point today is that getting somebody's identity right really matters. It, it doesn't really matter that they didn't recognise the Queen in the grand scheme of things, but ultimately it really matters because it affects how we respond to someone. Uh, not recognising the Queen is one thing, but I want to say that recognising Jesus for who he is is the most important question that we can have. The biggest question in the world which needs answering, who is Jesus? Um, there may be other great questions you might have uh, which the Bible would be able to answer. Um, why am I here? Um, who am I? Is there a God? But the biggest question the Bible asks us, which needs answering, is who is Jesus? And what do you think about that? Uh, let me take, we've looked in Mark and Mark 1. I'm just going to zoom forward to the verse or the passage around which our, our memory verse cards are from, Mark 8, um, later on in the book of Mark. We, we've looked a little bit about Jesus when we've been in our series in Ephesians. Uh, but in this series, in the lead up to Easter, we're going to have a look at the book of Mark, about what Jesus said, uh, what he did when he was here. And by this stage at Mark 8, the eighth chapter of this book, he's done quite a lot. Um, and he said quite a lot. And he then asked his disciples, 12 men who he'd called to follow him, to spend time with him. Uh, people who know him best. He asked them in Mark 8, 27, he says, who do people say I am? Now, Jesus is basically asking them, what's the word on the street? Um, what are people saying about who they think I really am? See, by this stage, if you flick through Mark, and I encourage you to read the book this week, He's healed hundreds, he's been rejected by his family, he's taught many, he's calmed a raging storm and he's fed 5,000 people. So he's asking his disciples, what are people saying about me? What, what are people talking about? And the disciples report back, they say this, verse 28, they say, some say John the Baptist, others say you're Elijah, and still others say you're, you're one of the prophets. So the disciples report back, it seems to be the consensus is, uh, he's a prophet, one in a great line of men who have been proclaiming about God for thousands of years. Special, but just one of many. But then Jesus asks, what I'm arguing here is the greatest question we all need to answer. Verse 29, but what about you? As Lank said just now, what about you today? Who do you say I am? Who do you think Jesus is? The man literally divided history. B.C., A.D., before Christ, after Christ, billions today follow him, billions previously have. And you may be sitting here going, I know Jesus, I, I've read about him at Christmas, at Easter, at school, I've heard the stories. But I think the question is really doubly crucial for us today, because not every Jesus we have in our minds is necessarily the real Jesus, which we see in Scripture. 
But by that, I mean, we may have just skewed views of who Jesus was. There's therapist Jesus. He helps us cope with life's problems. Um, there's open-minded Jesus who loves everyone all the time, no matter what. There's gentle Jesus, meek and mild, um, probably sort of hair about this length, sandals, walks barefoot, looks a little bit German. Um, there's guru Jesus, a wise, inspirational teacher. There's boyfriend Jesus, wraps his arms around you with his unconditional love. And those are just a few different views of Jesus. We have glimpses of the truth, yes, but not him in full. And in this series, we're going to look at the true, real Jesus. We sit under the Bible as we've looked at its authority, what it says about Jesus. This is where we encounter him. And this book is just going to keep asking us, who do you say I am? You see, Christianity, it's, it's all about a person, not rules, not traditions or anything else. It's all about a person, Jesus. And so if you're a Christian here today, for the coming weeks, can I encourage us to look at this man afresh? to see who he was and be challenged by him. Uh, as a follower of Jesus, I really want to be like him, uh, but do I truly know him? Uh, and if you're someone who wouldn't say you're a Christian here today, you won't follow Jesus at the moment, welcome, it's great that you're coming here and hearing about this. Please do listen, please do come back each week. Um, take away one of the Bibles, they're, they're free to take away if you've not got one. Read the Gospel of Mark. See why we think knowing him is the most important thing in the world. Because getting someone's identity right really matters. It affects how we respond to them. Uh, the book of Mark we're going to be looking at um, is going to really help us. Um, it's one of the four books we call Gospels, biographies of Jesus. Uh, a short book, probably take about two hours to read, give or take, um, maybe less. But it's fast-paced like a thriller. Um, it's short, it's sharp, it's snappy. The word immediately is used more than any other book. It just keeps going from step to step. Um, who was Mark? Mark History seems to tell us he was maybe the secretary or translator of Peter, one of the 12 disciples, one of the 12 followers of Jesus. And he wrote down all that Peter remembered. And it generally splits quite nicely as half as a book. Uh, first eight chapters look at the question, who is Jesus? The second half answer the question, why did he come? And so over the next eight weeks, and I'll lead up to Easter, uh, we're going to look at various aspects of Jesus' life, who he was, what he did and why he came, all leading to that key question. What are you going to do about it? Who is Jesus and how are you going to respond? But today we're going to look at Mark 1. Make sure you've got your Bibles open. We're just going to take it point by point. Um, right at the start of the book, and I'm really sorry, it is a spoiler alert. Mark 8, Jesus has gone, who do you say I am? Mark 1, Mark says, this is who he is. This is who he says from the evidence is who he is. So it is a spoiler alert. Uh, but he gives this summary right at the start, if you look down with verse 1. He says, it is the beginning of the good news about Jesus the Messiah, the Son of God. And this is the headline of the book. Um, we're going to do two things today. We're going to look at this headline and then going to see how it's unpacked in the remaining verses. So firstly, it says in the beginning, or the beginning in our ones at the moment. Uh, and that's an absolutely obsolete start to a story, isn't it? Uh, it's a bit odd to start a story going, this is the start of a story. You kind of just get it by a factor in chapter one. Um, it doesn't really make much sense. So Mark is doing something really deliberate here from what I've read, what the commentators say, he's echoing the words, the first words of the Bible in Genesis 1, when it says, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. What Mark is saying here is like that amazing momentous beginning at the start of all history, when there was nothing and God created, he's saying this is a new beginning, a new moment. And his next phrase gives us more of this, the beginning of the good news. Sometimes 
is translated gospel, which you might have heard. But Mark is saying that what he's about to say is really good news. And not just good news like, I found my keys, good news. Or, I'm really happy my wife hasn't found the dirty mugs in my study, good news. It is literally earth-changing news, earth-shattering news. Um, it's quite hard to find an equivalent now. It was used around the time when this was written about the birth of new emperors or kings. Um, and ultimately, I'm not massively bothered about the birth of the new whatever it's going to be from William and Kate, whatever the names are. I'm not too stuffed. It's not really earth-shattering news. So it's quite hard to imagine now what earth-shattering news looks like. But at this time, that word means an event which will change history. This is Mark's claim. The beginning of this story I'm about to tell you is an event which will change history. And he says it's news, not advice, not a fable, not a story, uh, not even fake news, but sort of six o'clock on the BBC type of news. He's saying that this actually happened. Now, the good news of what? Keep looking down on me in verse one. As I said, Christianity is all about a person. The good news of Jesus the Messiah, or maybe in your Bibles, Jesus Christ. Now, Jesus Christ, you're more likely to hear as a swear word um, in the pub than as a title that it is. And in the UK, names don't really mean anything. Um, my sister, before she was married, was called Alexandra Reed, which literally means defender of men with red hair. Um, she tried to claim it as her own. Um, she's a hockey player. She once played in an all-men's team at the back as in defence. Um, but my, she could hardly claim my parents named her that for a reason. Uh, her name didn't really mean anything. Uh, names mean something different and we're in different places of the world. In the South Pacific, names mean a lot more. Um, place names, for example, some of these are brilliant. Um, if you went for a walk around the South Pacific, a day's exploring might lead you up the hill of difficulty. Does what it says on the tin. Um, and you would walk very near the sea cliffs called, very ominously, where Dan fell. So these names, they tell you all you need to know. And so it is with Jesus Christ. For a first century Jew, this would have been mind-blowing, what Mark was claiming here. The name Jesus was pretty common, like it is today in a lot of South America, but this little Jewish boy was called it for a really specific reason. In the Greek form of the name, it's Yeshua, Joshua today. And it means Yahweh saves, the Lord saves. And the angel, when he spoke to Joseph, we see in another gospel, made it really clear to Joseph that he was be, to be given this name because he, Jesus, will save people from their sins. The Lord saves, that's what Jesus means. And at the coming week, he's going to look at what it means to be saved from our sins. We've seen it in Ephesians, we're dead in our transgressions and sins. Yahweh was the Jewish people's personal name for God. So this name Yahweh saves, or perhaps God to the rescue nowadays, really reflected his destiny. And Jewish readers at the time would have understood this. Uh, and as we read scripture, we need to know what the original readers, how they would have understood the text. So the name Jesus, relatively normal, a lot of people had at the time, but Christ is not his surname. It's anything but, and this is mind blowing for a Jewish reader at the time. It's not his surname, but it's a title. It's the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Messiah, as you've probably got in your books. Uh, and it means anointed one, not just any anointed one, but the anointed one. It's the title Jews had used for thousands of years to refer to the coming of the promised king. The one who would administer God's rule on earth and rescue Israel from all its oppressors and troubles. Not just a king, but the king. But Mark does not just call Jesus for Christ, he goes further, doesn't he? the good news of Jesus Christ, the Son of God. That's an even more astonishingly bold claim. 
It goes beyond the understanding at the time of who the Messiah would be. It claims outright divinity. It claims he was God on earth. So as we look at this summary of what we're about to look at, hopefully it excites you for what we're going to read in the next eight weeks. But this is the claim of Mark at the start of the book. He's saying this echoes a new beginning, amazingly earth-changing news about this man Jesus, God to the rescue, the promised king who is God on earth. It's one verse which packs a lot of punch. So as we ask this question, who is Jesus? And as you ask yourself, who do you say he is? Think about this verse which kicks it all off. Now, Mark then goes to unpack this statement a little bit more. He shows a bit more in depth what it meant for Jesus to be the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of God. And in the next 10 verses, he shows us in the early days of his public ministry some evidence for Jesus, this Jewish carpenter being the promised king. He has helpfully three witnesses who confirm this, who confirm he is who Mark is saying he is here. He's got three witnesses. He's got the Old Testament, he's got John the Baptist, and he's got God the Father. Three witnesses all say Jesus is who Mark says he is. Firstly then, uh, the Old Testament tells us that when Jesus came, God came. It backs up that statement about him being the son of God. Now, uh, imagine you did actually get to meet the queen uh, and you recognised her, unlike the tourists from that unnamed country. Imagine there's a knock on the door. Um, it wouldn't really happen, but you'd open it. You see this incredibly, relatively small posh woman who says, hello, and it's the queen. Imagine you see her there. Well, you probably can't imagine it because it would never happen. Because when a monarch comes, generally, except in Balmoral Park for some reason, they don't do so unannounced. When a monarch comes, when somebody comes, they do so, they announce it, they tell everyone they're coming. And Jesus did not turn up unannounced. His arrival was promised for centuries beforehand. We see here in verses 2 and 3, two prophecies, two predictions that were written down in the Old Testament that they had at this time. Isaiah was a prophet who wrote over 700 years before Jesus came, and Malachi was about 500 years before Jesus. Uh, and here it says, they wrote God as saying, I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way. A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord, make straight paths for him. This says that God would send a messenger ahead to prepare for him to come. And we need to know how much of a bombshell this was from Mark. Again, using the word Lord or Yahweh was incredible. He's saying that this man Jesus, from verse 1, is Yahweh, the personal holy name of God. It was so holy, and it still is for Jews, that you don't even write it or speak it. I used to live with a, a, a practicing Jewish lady, and she literally would not write or say the name God. So holy. And this is what Mark is saying, is who this man Jesus is. But he's also saying that a messenger is going to come before him to announce that he is coming, to tell people to prepare the way for him, because God is going to come and rescue them. Make a way for him in your lives, make it ready for him. In, uh, in olden times, whenever a royal dignitary um, would come um, to your town, they'd build a road if they didn't have one. And depending on whether you're a B-list royal dignitary or an A-list royal dignitary, depending on what sort of road you got. Um, if you were really average, think of, I don't know, Prince Edward, um, Princess Eugenie, whatever they are, B-list royal dignitary, um, they probably, if there was a rock in the way, you'd go around the rock. Um, if it was a mountain, you'd have to go over the mountain. They wouldn't quite go the most direct way. But if it was the king, they would just knock down everything in the way. They'd make a properly straight road and a straight path for them, the quickest way possible, to prepare for them to come. 
And so this prophecy from the Old Testament is saying someone is coming first to prepare for the coming of God himself. Prepare the way for the Lord. God is stepping in. So that's our first witness, the Old Testament. Secondly, we have John the Baptist. And he's going to tell us that Jesus is powerful enough to actually be the promised Messiah. That he can bring us into a new relationship with God. Have a look down at verse 4. It says, and so John the Baptist appeared in the wilderness. Now, this just fulfills exactly what Isaiah had said above. I will send my messenger ahead of you, who will prepare your way, a voice of one calling in the wilderness. So this is John the Baptist. Now, look in verse 6. You may have read it and think this man is just not normal. He's not. It wasn't normal at that time to wear camel's hair. A leather belt round his waist, that may have been relatively normal, but to eat locusts and wild honey was definitely not. What John was doing was he was adopting the style of the Old Testament prophets. And the point is, John is standing at the end of a really long line of expectation. Throughout the Old Testament, of prophetic voices who have been crying out and saying for hundreds and thousands of years, God is coming. God is going to come and rescue you. The Messiah, the Christ, is coming. And John's message is that all that expectation is about to be fulfilled. Jesus is standing at the door, he's standing in the wings, and he's about to come, and so it's time to get ready. Build that straight road. But what is it that Jesus was coming for, does John say? Well, this is John's message. Verse 7 and 8, if you look down. This was his message. After me comes the one more powerful than I, the straps of whose sandals I am not worthy to stoop down and untie. Just a side point, that's slaves' business. Slaves untied their master's sandals. And John, one of the most amazing prophetic figures in history, someone so great and so powerful is saying, even he is not worthy to untie the shoes of this person. Even John is not worthy to be a slave. That is who John is saying is coming. And then verse 8, what is this person coming for? John says, I baptise with water but he will baptise you with the Holy Spirit. There's so much we could say, but the, the Holy Spirit is the living and active presence of God. And John is saying that when Jesus comes, he will plunge us not into water, but into the living, active presence of God in our lives. In, in Ephesians language, we're made alive in Christ. And this is what Jesus came to do. This is the good news. Good news for all of us. This is Jesus Christ, the Son of God. And the two witnesses tell us this. Old Testament scriptures tell us that when Jesus comes, God comes. And then John the Baptist, the last of the prophets, tells us that Jesus is amazingly powerful and will bring us into this new relationship with God. Finally, the third witness, verses 9 to 13. Uh, it's the witness of God the Father, and he backs up all that has been said by Mark and by the Old Testament and John, that this Jesus who comes is the Son of God. Now, uh, again, on our royal theme, imagine you've had a massive police escort, if you will, clearing the road ahead. The, the town crier in the olden days, John the Baptist going, this amazing person is coming. If you're a Jew reading this now, if you're reading this at this time, it's a little bit like at the end of this royal escort, instead of seeing the giant motorcade and the queen waving out the carriage, whatever it might be, it's a little bit like you see a man riding a rickety bicycle. Because we're expecting Jesus, the Messiah, the Son of God, and yet what we get in verse 9, at that time Jesus came from Nazareth in Galilee. Now, I don't offend anyone by comparing where this was nowadays. Um, I play hockey for Bicester, our big rivals are Whitney, we don't like Whitney. It's the equivalent of saying, this man Jesus has come from Whitney. A backwater, middle of nowhere, you don't really like it. 
And the people who would have been reading this would have been going, why on earth is this person from Nazareth? Utter back, well, this is not an ordinary person. It's not what they would have been expecting. Uh, and it's no ordinary baptism. What becomes clear as Jesus comes out of the water is that what John has been saying is true. Verses 10 and 11. Uh, as Jesus was coming out of the water, he saw heaven being torn open and the spirit descending on him like a dove. And a voice came from heaven saying, you are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. It's extraordinary. Jewish people spoke about the closing of heaven as a way of saying God's blessing had been withdrawn, shut. But now it's torn open and the Holy Spirit descends. And the word of his third witness, God the Father, comes and says, You are my son whom I love. With you, I am well pleased. Who is Jesus? The eternally loved son of a father. From Mark 1, the son of God. Now, just stop for a minute. Isn't it a little bit weird that Jesus is getting baptised? Uh, the first thing he does is get baptised by John. Why was John baptising people? Well, John says, verse, uh, far, verse 4, he was preaching baptism of repentance for forgiveness of sins. Now, we said earlier that Jesus means that God is coming to rescue us from our sins, the name Jesus. And, and this word repentance points us to this. It points us to the fact that Repentance is about changing our mind about ourselves and about God. It's stopping running away from God and turning around, running towards him to embrace him in our lives. And this is what John's baptism symbolised. As they got plunged under the water, they were saying they wanted their sins forgiven. This was them preparing the way for the Lord. They want their sins forgiven, their old life, living as if God wasn't there, put to death. But the eternal Son of God who the father says he is well pleased with, has no sins to be washed away. So what is he doing being baptised? Well, this is the amazing thing. He was identifying himself with us, with sinful, broken people like me and like you. He came to stand in our place to identify with broken humanity. And ultimately, this is what he would do on the cross. What we'll see as we continue to look through Mark. God's words to Jesus here, the ones he declares, you are my son whom I love, with you am I well pleased. Echo another passage in Isaiah that talks of a suffering servant who would give up his life as a sin offering, who would be numbered with the transgressors, with the sinners. He died on the cross not for our sins, not for his sins, but for our sins, identifying with us completely as he does when he's baptised. And this is what Mark says is good news. This is why he says it's good news. It's earth-shatteringly good news that Jesus, God the rescuer, the Messiah, the anointed king, has come to save us. Right at the start of the book, this is what he's telling us. So remember our key question at the start, what we said about how getting someone's identity right really matters, how when we truly understand who someone is, it makes all the difference to how we relate to them. Well, Mark has given you his, his summary his sort of headline of the document when he says, this is Jesus, he has come to save. The promised king, the son of God, God himself has come. Three witnesses at the start of the story back that up, tell us that themselves. Uh, and now for you, I think the question's got to be, who is this man? Who do you say he is? As we go through it, as we go through it over the next eight weeks or so, Ask yourself the question, how would I have responded if I was in the crowd? If I was at his baptism, what on earth would I have thought? Getting someone's identity right really matters. It affects how we respond to them. 
And as we look at this gospel, we're going to see how different people responded. Uh, they always responded in extreme ways. Um, what our culture often does is we just ignore him. That didn't really happen when people encountered Jesus. Some wanted to kill him. Some were really scared of him. Some chose to kneel before him and follow him. And my question is, what about you? If you're just looking in, again, welcome. I encourage you again, look at this man, Jesus, this real Jesus. Read this short book as part of this bigger book for yourself. You won't regret it. Do take a Bible. And if you're a follower of Jesus today, this is good news. Let's celebrate this. The fact that God has come to rescue us. Praise him that he chose to identify with us, to offer us his new relationship. And in this series, let's meet him afresh. Let's look at him closely and see Jesus who he is. Challenge your preconceived notion of him. Why don't you read through the whole of Mark this week? See afresh who he is as well. We're going to get the children back in. Um, we're going to celebrate communion together. We're going to celebrate um, Jesus' coming and standing our place together. Uh, but whilst they come back in, why don't you just chat to the person next to you? Look at these questions um, on the screen. Should be two. Um, who do you think Jesus is? It's a simple question, but just ask the person next to you. Uh, and do you think his coming to earth is earth-shattering good news? Getting someone's identity right really matters. It affects how we respond to him. Let me pray, and then we'll have two minutes with that. Father, thank you so much that you sent your son to this earth to rescue us. Lord, we thank you that in scripture we can see exactly who you are. Uh, help us to see you for who you are uh, and take away our, our ideas which are not of you. Uh, help us to follow you uh, and to know you. And we thank you and praise you so much again for coming in our place. Amen.